Uh, hi, welcome to this special podcast episode where we're doing some supplemental teaching and diving into some questions on the forgiveness series. Um, I'm joined by three wonderful people. Uh, Reg is here as our lead pastor who's been part of this conversation and done some teaching. Uh, Keith Regeer, who has been involved in the Mennonite community for a long time, doing a lot of work with restorative justice um, and conflict studies. And then uh, Doreen Westera, who um, I will try hard not to call her mom throughout this podcast, but she has taught spirituality and nursing for many, many years and has a counseling practice. So we're looking forward to having a little bit of a conversation with the four of us about the questions that came in and the topics that this has brought up as a series. So uh, the first question that I actually have for us is, um, it's asked multiple different ways, but what does it mean to reconcile or can we reconcile with a relationship where we've actually lost track of the other person or we don't have communication with them? What do we do in that situation? So, and I would, I would start um, by asking Keith, because we were emailing back and forth, you addressed something in email saying that there's often a difference between the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I found, as we've worked through this series, that has often been kind of at the crux of the question. So I'd actually love to hear your thought on that, if that's possible. Yeah. Um, so my, my first response to that question is that reconciliation is really about an interaction between the people who are um, having the problem or the conflict. And what that means is if you can't actually have a conversation with the other, there isn't the possibility of reconciliation because re reconciliation is a relational act. Um, but that doesn't mean that forgiveness is impossible. Um, you can still forgive. Um, you won't be able to communicate that to the other person. But as, um, as I listen to the sermons, there is some real clarity there that, that forgiveness, while aimed towards reconciliation is also actually really helpful for uh, the person doing the forgiving. I also, I think I also make a, a distinction between forgiveness, letting go, and reconciliation. Mm. And I know in counseling, I found, it was interesting in counseling because I found I would often ask um, clients if it was a, particularly a couple, I would say, where does forgiveness fit in your relationship? And I was always astounded with how many people said, oh, well, it doesn't. Uh, I say I'm sorry, and then it just goes under the rug, and that's it, right? So um, so I think sometimes, it, I mean, whether we call it forgiveness or whether we call it letting go, uh, if, there's, if there's another person that's not present, I think it has the same impact as... The forgiveness in terms of the peace and the shalom and within the person themselves but you obviously don't get the chance for the other person to enter into that process right they no. don't get to experience that healing and i think it can a little bit serve as a motivation a bit too right we talk about all the time for motivation for sharing the gospel or the good news with Jesus is like we would hate to have the people that we know or loved ones die before they get a chance to make that decision or understand. And I think this can be something that also motivates us to say, I don't want my friends or family that I'm close with, that I don't have that repaired relationship, I don't want them to die and us to still continue to have right. that on that broken relationship. It gives us motivation to say, I actually want to reach out and, and repair this so that they can enter into a chance of healing and repentance and 
restoration and they can get that healing. Yeah. I think too, it depends on what the lost track of means. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you can make an effort to actually contact the other person uh, after many years maybe, right? Even though you have lost, con lost track, there might be a way to actually engage with that person again and they themselves may be in a different uh, life situation that they are more willing. We see this in families all the time, you know, where, where children are estranged and then years later there's that connection and possibility for reconciliation now that the emotions have gone or life, ha you know, they've matured or life has uh, taught them lessons or whatever. So, hmm. yeah. All right, on, on the same lines or in the same stream, I guess, of questions um, would be what, how do we deal with people or how do we engage with people who don't either want to be part of the process of reconciliation um, or they downplay it, or they even say like, oh, this it's not a big thing, don't worry about it, or I haven't actually done anything wrong. No matter what we do or seem to engage, they don't want to engage on the, the process or the cycle of reconciliation. What do we do in those cases? I mean, my first my first response is that it's it, it feels very much the same um, as, as a situation where you can't um, can't find the other person or the person has died. <clears throat> I will say though that um, when, when, you, when, I, when I read that question and saw the comment about people minimizing or denying that they've caused any harm, um, I begin to wonder, and, and we, Doreen, you get to speak to this out of your own experience, I began to wonder about whether we can act, we're actually stepping into the, an area of abuse. Because when I hear that kind of minimization, I begin to hear um, what's talked about in the pop more popular culture as gaslighting, as um, sort of uh, somebody who's abusive and then says it's all your fault uh, that I did it. Um, and at that point, I begin to question whether it's even safe for the person who's been harmed to step into trying to meet with the other person because all they will get is the repeated, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Um, I didn't do anything, even though in fact they actually did do something. Or you get apologies that are like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. you get that kind yeah. of thing. I, I think that's often, if the other person is interested in, or at least willing to go for counseling, that's often where, where you meet them. Like people, I've had couples come in and they say, well, it's all her fault or, you know, she's doing this, and so this this makes me react that way, and you know, it, it it's it can be tricky to untangle what is actually going on, and I've had um, two people, sometimes a mother daughter even, uh, who have been willing to hear hard words spoken, uh, who have been willing to um, at least hear them, and initially put that wall up, but then through counseling. Uh, you get back at what is what is it about how is it hard for you to admit like what how is it hard for you what does that do to you so you get that kind of process going but i've also had people storm out of the office and say i'm not interested in this yeah. and you know then you're left with the person to to kind of work through that process where the other person isn't willing or they've lost track or they're dead it it fits into the same scenario but I, I feel sometimes if you can hook people in 
and respond if you've got two people who are in conflict in a counseling situation the counselor has skill to hook try to hook both of them in so that they're both on board and th that the counselor is hearing both sides equally kind of thing and then that opens up a way for the person to be more willing to enter into the process sometimes yeah. and I think I think one of the things that points to is that in that kind of a situation it's not something where you want to go by yourself to have the conversation with the other person right. you need somebody present with you to help you um, and my bias is always towards some of you who has skills and training mm -hmm. in helping to identify what the dynamic is uh, that's going on in the relationship so that they can they can step in and play um, a kind of a protective role to make sure that uh, the one person um, who has been harmed uh, doesn't get run over by the other person. Yes. Okay. And, and uh, like so one of the, and I'll try to phrase this because my mind's going in a bunch of different directions but one of like one of the things that's come up in this series and we've had conversations Aaron you and I um, like the, all the barriers that we naturally feel as humans to do the hard work of either going to somebody and saying you've offended me and I want to work towards reconciliation again reconciliation being the the the, the ultimate goal or going into someone and saying I did something wrong but I think about in the places where someone has the barrier to step out and confront somebody who's wronged them and then they do go and they confront someone and whether it's gaslighting or it's like you're, you, I, I think you're overblowing this, or, or they try to brush it off. Like that just adds to the pain and, and adds to a barrier. And I wonder what we would say to someone who's encountered that and whose response to that might be, well, I tried, and so now I'm almost free to go and hold my grudge because I tried and I didn't get anywhere. Like what you were saying earlier, I can't remember if this was before we recorded, uh, the idea of forgiveness and releasing. And, and so how do we coach somebody who has been in a situation like that where they could reasonably say, I made the first step and it got nowhere, and now their reaction is, I'm, I'm actually want to hold on to it more because I'm, I'm doubly hurt um, from the actual offense and from being rejected in my effort to reconcile. And how do we help people to not hold the pain and, and hurt themselves more by, by being resentful or bitter? That, that's just a question that popped in my mind from a pastoral kind of background and, and just knowing people are probably going through maybe this particular situation or situations like it like how would how would you coach I think it depends on the context okay. perhaps and the level of hurt and so on because even though the person says well I've tried um, if it was a minor thing and said well I've tried that's all I can do you know as, in as much as it's possible for me to do what I've done I've done yeah and then can let it go. But if it's a if it's a more intimate relationship, I, I as a pastor, I think I would recommend that they do get counseling to try and work through the double hurt, the impact on them. How are they going to navigate this so that their lives are not colored by this constant rage or okay. constant yeah. uh, uh, feelings of hurt that. Right. And the possibility that that they can be released from that through someone sitting and working through this process with them. So, Reg, you taught on Matthew 18. That was one of our key passages. And at the end of Matthew 18, Jesus lays out, go with them one-on-one, -on -one, then bring two or three, then bring bigger group. And, like, you know, there, there's steps there. I think there is wisdom 
in who those two or three or who yeah. that group is, right? So you mentioned it. One of those three is a police officer. Yeah, and in, in a this, serious situation. Yeah, or, or in this case, one might be a counselor or someone might be a trusted friend who could be a third-party objective mediator. Like, there is wisdom in depending on the situation and the relationship who that two or three people is. What we tend to do as a tendency is say, I'm going to find two or three that agree with me oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and bring them along, and then it's just ganging up on the other person, right? Yeah. You're, that's part of... You're, you're disguising revenge, in an essence, um, as forgiveness and reconciliation. Because you just want them to feel like they know they're wrong and to feel that pain when really the point is actually to pursue reconciliation. So mm-hmm. bringing someone who is a third party who can be objective about it might be mm-hmm. a healthier fit for that. So I just want to highlight uh, the conversation I just came from this morning, <laughs> which is talking with somebody um, around sexual abuse. Mm. Um, and, and I, so I'm going to go to a very hard case. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, part of my background is law, and uh, one of the aphorisms is hard cases make bad law, but you also have to deal with the hard cases. Yeah. So in, in, in situations of really significant harm, um, it also depends not just on the nature of the relationship, on the, but on the nature of the harm. And so there are certain kinds of things where um, it's simply not safe. Yeah. No matter what, bring 20 people with you. It's still not safe for the person to come and confront. Um, I could say way, way more about that, and that's not this conversation, but I think it's really important to hold that, that the severity of the harm is a really important factor in how you go about um, working at these questions of, both forgiveness and reconciliation. And we talked a bit at times about justice, about the nature mm-hmm. of justice, right? And yeah. so the pursuit of justice doesn't negate my need to release right. the, the emotion. And the, and, and the flip side of it is just because I forgive somebody doesn't mean that like, that justice doesn't need to be pursued. It still right. does need to be pursued, right? Because, again, I think, Aaron, in the very first sermon, you outlined this really well saying, this is what, this is what God intends to do you know, in a broken world is to, to bring his shalom and to set all things right. And so that is actually part of the process. Justice mm-hmm. plays a role in, in, in kind of reconciling and in creating the shalom. So, so yeah, I think we, we were trying to think, you know, as you're preaching this and you know, you don't know everybody's story and you don't mm-hmm. know what people have been through, but trying to make really clear mm-hmm. that under no circumstances will we ever um, pastor or counsel somebody to go into an unsafe place. Sure. And, and that's, that's a good reminder and to say, you know, it maybe is, you know, bringing two or three maybe is still not safe. Maybe. Um, I think too that it's not just physical safety, but it's also psychological yeah. safety. Yeah. Um, and I think back to a, a situation um, uh, where it was a, she was actually a family therapist and she spoke about this very publicly, so I'm not uh, uh, betraying any confidences. But she had been sexually abused by both her father and her grandfather. And she worked through the whole process in therapy of releasing forgiveness, whatever. But she said in a public talk that she gave, she said, I have chosen not to see them again in this life, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I think that was because of the psychological uh, sense of lack of safety that she would feel yeah. in their presence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no more physical harm, but, but psychological harm. 
good. And, and well, no, we talk about the extreme situations, and that's not everything. I, I think it's important to always do that. Mm. But in the every day, I think that also applies to, especially people who, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I won't do it again, and then they do it over and over again, and they mm. do it over again. And part of that is also just understanding that we, I said to Reg earlier, I was like, Listen, we now I understand uh, what Paul means in Romans 7, where it's like, I want to do the right thing. I want to be it. I say that, but then I continually fail because of what's inside me. And there is a little bit of that in our everyday day-to-day when someone says, oh, I'm sorry, I mean to change it. They might actually mean to change, but the root of who they are. And I, I, I was saying earlier, too, is that might mean in the process of reconciliation, the discipline is a very key thing. Discipline in a sense that you're trying to set up a routine or a pattern that helps you avoid future offense or helps you correct it. So if, if you always have this tendency and when you're with someone and they end up hurting you and then you repent and you forgive and then they just do it again and they do it again and they do it again, part of it might be saying, hey, listen, we need some space and some time apart because every time we're together, we actually have this tendency that this happens over and over again. And you might be actually repentant, you might actually believe it, but it just might be you and I together that this happens. So let's get some space here, and that might be part of the discipline of saying, you bring this out of me and it's unsafe, and we actually need to not be in the same room or physical vicinity for some time, which is hard. There also could be things like addiction that's going on. You know, so in in the case, or, or some kind of illness in the case of the person that keep, keeps repeating the behavior. And so it's kind of like that needs to be addressed either simultaneously or before the work, the hard work of the recon- or the forgiveness and reconciliation, if possible. Or even deep-rooted hurt on the offender's part, right? Like that's yeah. hurt people hurt is the, the thing yes. we've said multiple times is when someone's unwilling to even engage on their own hurt, it's hard for them to also enter into the process, right? So that's why we've tried to communicate over and over mm-hmm. again. There's work to be done on both sides, right, of this conversation. All right, let's go to another question. Um, We can pick, there's a whole stream of ones that actually talk a little bit about the church. So I'll ask, there's going to be three questions I'll I'll kind of ask here, and I'm just curious if we can talk about this. So first one is, how do we reconcile with those who have left the church over theological disagreements? Uh, The second is, what is, how does this actually apply to institutions? So the church has hurt people, and how do we apply this within um, a system that, that's let us down or hurt us? And the third thing is, do we have a greater responsibility, or is this process of forgiveness and reconciliation different between believers and non-believers? So I'll leave that there. Those are three we could unpack, but I'll kind of lump them together because they kind of have to deal with a little bit of the same world. Yeah, I mean, the idea of whether we have a responsibility to reconcile with a Christian more than with a non-Christian, I, I mean, you, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find biblical precedent for that. It seems that this is, this is the nature of being in a relationship with humans, regardless of faith background. Um, I do, that being said, I do think there's opportunity for Christian community that where we do this well, um, it bears witness to something. Um, and so, you know, I think in, when I preached, I talked about Keller... Um, in his book mentioning how we're moving away from forgiveness being a virtue and if Christians were to uphold that and work towards reconciliation even in really hard situations I think that 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 bears witness and so hopefully when you have a disagreement between two Christians you're both working from the same worldview and the same high view of forgiveness 
But I still think that as Christians, when we're wronged by our neighbor or our coworker, um, yeah, there's still a valuable testimony that we make when we work towards forgiveness, on top of which, you know, that we're, we're following Jesus and, and this is the way as humans that we've been designed to, to, um, to function. So, yeah, I'd say no to the part where we have a greater responsibility to reconcile with the Christian, but say there's great opportunity there in terms of our witness. The other thing I would add to that is that the church community becomes a, I'm not quite sure the right word, becomes a place for training in doing forgiveness, mm-hmm. yeah. right? We, we, we function in the, in the body as a way that values forgiveness, so we get practice doing it. Um, and so uh, then when it becomes outward focused, um, we're more able to. So there's a story here. I don't know if you folks are familiar with the uh, the Amish story from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania a number of years ago, Nickel Mines, yeah. uh, where a guy came in and shot um, a bunch of girls in an Amish schoolhouse. And part of the conversation, so one of the things that happened, this is my memory of, of the day, is I remember hearing an Amish guy say, we will forgive. He didn't say I am forgiving, but he says we will. Mm-hmm. But what what lay behind that is a set of disciplines within the community uh, around forgiveness. Now, there's some problems. Sometimes it's a forced forgiveness, but it is a very, very high value in that community. And they practiced it. They practiced it. And the other thing they did is the Lord's Prayer is really important in the Amish communities. And so they pray it three or four or five times a day. And so it becomes embedded, you know. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So there's a there's an ethos of forgiveness, and that enabled them after the shooting to forgive. To when they raised money, s- give part of that towards the wife of the shooter because she was also a victim, and for them to go to the funeral of the shooter because they were there to support the wife. Right. So there's this whole package that came with. A lifetime of training in forgiveness. And so the church can become that kind of a place um, for doing that very significant act of, forgi- of, uh, of forgiveness. And actually, the mother of the shooter wrote a book, uh, which was a very powerful book. On yes. How she experienced that. I think another role of the church, I mean, the church becomes the training ground, but I think a lot of it can happen within the family unit as well. And I think I see churches having a role in working with families. How do you teach your kids to forgive? How many times have we heard, you say you're sorry to your brother for doing that? That is not the best way to deal with. And then the kid says, I'm sorry. I mean, I probably did this, Aaron. <laughs> I was perfect, so I don't know what you're talking about. I never don't say anything. Yeah, you, you tell your brother or your sister you're sorry for doing that, right? Yeah. But... And that might be the immediate response, and the kid says, "I'm sorry," and then goes off, and and there's nothing resolved, that, yeah. you know. So I think families, families can be um, there can be a, an educative thing that the church can do in terms of how does this happen within the unit of the family? Because if it's happening there, it's going to happen. It's going to spread. So I found it interesting, and you're saying the church becomes this like training ground, and yet just culturally, you know, in 
churches like I don't know, I'm not going to name denominations, but or even non-denominations, but but it's become so easy in our in our individualist consumerist world is that when I come up against something that I don't agree with or somebody steps on my toes, I just bail. And so the idea of like how do we how do we you have to have that sense of commitment to one another in the first place that when you have a disagreement that you enter into the process of making things right. So and I maybe that ties in with that question of what do we how do we reconcile people who leave over theological disagreements? I mean, my question would always be, what is the theological disagreement if it's massive, like Jesus is the Son of God? Like, that that's, I mean, that's a pretty important doctrine. If it's something secondary or tertiary, like, how do you... I think maybe you said also, Doreen, about um, the nature of of the disagreement, the nature of the pain, or the nature of the mm-hmm. of the offense dictates something, right? And I think that might be true as well when people leave the church over different reasons. Um, but just that idea of commitment and working towards belonging to each other so that we can actually enter into a process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my reflection was, I mean, I also made a note, what's the theological issue? Um, and you made a you know, secondary tertiary, but your Secondary issue is my primary issue, right? Um, And so the question becomes, is this a theological issue where somebody thinks they can't be in fellowship with somebody who believes X? Whatever X is, pick your X, and there's lots of those out there. Um, And then it so then it becomes, okay, well, if they if they don't think they can live with me in community because of this, then what does reconciliation look like? Mm And I wonder if we fall back to our opening question then, which is what do you do when somebody doesn't want to reconcile? Because it appears that they don't want to reconcile. Um, so it becomes a question of what's possible. Um, my, my own thinking is I've been reflecting on this question and, and knowing congregations that have split and you know doing work with congregations that have split. The question I think at some point becomes if there is one of those issues that drives people away or it makes them choose to, to pull out, is it possible for us to, at the very least, bless each other as they walk out the door? Right. Can we say, we're sorry you can't be with us, but we bless you as you walk out the door so you can find a place where you can be at home? And can they look at us and say, and in return, we bless you and the work that you're doing, and we'll go and be somewhere else so we won't be a pain in the neck for you. Right. Um, and maybe that's all that's possible, but that, as I think about denominations also where congregations have done, that be- can become a really big conversation about being able to bless each other as a congregation leaves. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a critical piece, I think. And I, many years ago, I worked at a church, um, and the pastor used to often take it very personally when somebody would leave. And so that process of leaving, um, he would just throw the kitchen sink at them to try to get them to stay. And that would often create a, a greater divide. And I remember sometimes being in the office next and listening and being like, man, I, I think there must be a better way. So um, try to be predisposed to blessing people and making sure they knew the door was open. I will confess that like certainly over the COVID season when people, you know, it was just like uh, <laughs> people coming in and out and it was just a different time. Like it, be, it gets hard. You're a human. So you start taking some stuff personally. But but I, I think that we do try. 
I would say for us as a church, we do try to to release people and um, bless them and even offer to help them find a community that fits them better, all while saying mm-hmm. the door is open because I don't want it to be hard. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if you go and you, and you realize this was family and you want to come back, um, we always want to make sure that that's as easy as possible. So that, that I think that's a great word. What's really bad is when people leave and no one notices they've left. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think... That's not the role of just the pastor. I think people in the church need to be, to have their antenna out. My husband and I have worked with young adults all our lives. And that's the group that I notice if somebody's not at church, Hmm. you know, in churches. I think, you haven't seen so-and-so. Like, why are they not coming? And and sometimes that phone call and say, you know, I just miss seeing you or I miss seeing you, you know, participating in the music or whatever can open up a conversation to find out what the reason is and sometimes it might be a hurt or it might be whatever and then you can go from there yeah Um, i had a whole conversation this morning with someone about there is a way to do this healthy if you're doing it where you're split because of beliefs and you create these denominations that this is what it means to be christian is to be part of our denomination that's unhealthy but if if you have this unified idea of who Christ is and we are Christians and then each denomination if you will becomes a focus or becomes an emphasis on it you're, you're a different part of the body and in, 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 to use the analogy of Paul right is this church might be really really situation and good to do um, project one but another church might not be so let them do it release them to do it do it well and bless them as Keith said right um, and in terms of Part of this also is how do we forgive? I'm, I'm interested in what you guys will say because I've been part of churches that have had scandals and um, situations, and I won't name them, but like, not from me, thankfully, because I don't. But, but where there's hurt, a lot of hurt and pain from one pastor doing something that they're not supposed to that hurts a lot of people in the process. So, how does our church? respond because what, what the current trend is is to cancel culture right of they made a mistake they're even if they're repentant or not they've now um they're now dead to us we burn all their books we erase all their teachings they're dead they're they're gone they're out of our community forever and out of our lives because they made this one mistake is that what are your thoughts on this i i'm curious because i've been literally working through this with communities of people my first response is one mistake or a way of being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it comes to the point where, where one begins to recognize, particularly in situations of abuse, um, abusers never abuse one person. Mm-hmm. It's a pattern of life. That just, that's, that's how they function in the world. And so unless, and it comes back to our conversation earlier, unless the person in question is willing to face up to their behaviors and their patterns of behavior and to work at repairing them, um, I don't see reconciliation happening. Um, You know, there's, um, one of my thoughts about this all is, it's the intersection of apology done well or repentance done well Mm -hmm. and and forgiveness, right? They, They play with each other. And in my course, I taught, uh, when I was teaching, I had a section on forgiveness and I had a section on apology. So what's a good apology? 
And um, so that's one of those things I've been thinking about. And I, I picked up some stuff in that, for that lecture on, um, from some Jewish thinking. And that is, so what is it that needs to be done? And what does repentance look like? Well, it looks like acknowledging the harm. It looks like uh, working to undo the harm, whatever that might be. It looks like working to become the kind of person who no longer does that kind of harm. And the writer that I'm thinking about then says, at that point, you get to ask for forgiveness. You don't get to ask for forgiveness until you have changed who you are to cease to be the kind of person who does harm. Mm -hmm. So now when I look at those stories of, of pastors who've done serial abuse who still deny that it was abusive, they haven't even started. Hmm. Like, they haven't even taken the first step of acknowledging the harm, yeah. let alone working to undo it, let alone uh, seeking to change who they are. Um, that doesn't mean that the person harmed can't forgive, but until that work is done on the other side. And this, this brings me back to one of the things that I've been reflecting on a great deal, is there are times when the pressure within the Christian world is to insist that the victims have to forgive while never insisting that the offender has to change. Mm. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. Um, reconciliation requires both people to do hard work. I can seek to reconcile with you, but if you haven't made the commitment to be a different kind of human being who will no longer do what you did, I don't think that's reconciliation. It's yeah. a one-sided um, bleeding on the carpet for the person who has been harmed, and the other person gets to walk away and say, well, whatever. Um, yeah. So that's that's one of my rants around this yeah. this question, and that's why I talked in the, when we talked about the cycle in the third week. If yeah. you skip any of the steps, yeah. you get things like, well, why do I have to change when they don't understand what the, even the offense was, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you skip part of the cycle and you don't have that conversation yeah. or with someone, or you end up in this weird either they're not repentant or they don't understand what they're repentant because we just want to skip to punishing or we want to skip to restoration as opposed to like the actual process and work that is um, in there before before we carry on to this conversation in the notes there also is a uh, additional resource from uh, Brene Brown and Dr. Harriet Lerner who did a two-part thing on how to apologize and why it matters mm. very 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 good it, I, I had a section in it for my third week but it was already long enough so that <laughs> hit the cutting room floor but it's in the additional notes as a resource uh, if anyone's interested in that because they unpack quite a bit um, even as Amy and I listened to that, we decided, oh, this is something we're going to practice with our kids, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it had things like you name the, the, the hurt, and then you actually have to say something nice about the other person, right? Like, this is a really good practice mm -hmm. when you have kids and how to, how to apologize together, because so often we make it, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way, or, you know, we, we oh, I'm sorry, like you said, a fake apology from because from, we're told to do it. So that apologizing well is really, really important. <laughs> so on, on that one, um, I, have a, I have a resource to recommend a book. Um, it's called Unrepentance and Repair. And it's by a rabbi uh, named, I believe, Danya Ruttenberg. Uh, and I can make sure that you get the reference for that. I'll notes. add it into the notes as an yeah. additional resource. Thanks for that. It was interesting. We, we spent the winter in another country, and the, the very first Sunday, 
we went to church, um, a man came up. He had stolen money from the church, and he had gone to therapy because he said this is out of character. Like, why am I doing? Why did I do this? He had done the repair work with his mm -hmm. wife. You know, he had he had done those steps, and then he was. Uh, he wanted to come to, to the front of the church and ask the church to forgive him. But it was beautiful because people came with him. People mm -hmm. in the church came with him. And, and he, he acknowledged what the wrong that he had done. He said, I am so sorry. He paid back the money. And he said, will you forgive me? And, and afterwards, after the service, everybody just gathered mm -hmm. around him and just loved him. You know, and I mean, this is kind of heavy for the first time going to a church <laughs> to see this. But we thought, this is a church we think we'll go to while we're here, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and it was beautiful to see. Yeah. The other thing I just want to add about institutions, um, you know, institutions can't talk, hmm. right? So, so at one level, reconciling with an institution is actually the work of the leaders, Mm. Um, and that doesn't matter whether the leader in question is the one who has caused harm or it's a past leader in the, con in the institution who has caused harm. You know, if, if, God forbid, but if there had been a pastor here 40 years ago who had done significant harm and somebody in the church finally comes forward and says, hey, this pastor in the past did this to me, um, I, need, I need to deal with this, it would be... Uh, Reg and Aaron, that would be your job then to speak for the institution mm. and to acknowledge the harm that was done, et cetera, et cetera, and to, to be the face of reconciliation with the institution of Lincoln Road Church, yeah. right? Yeah. It's also, that's why it's so important to have policies and procedures and things in place as an institution. Uh, we had that conversation. I, not that we would hope any of our pastors would do that, but... What do we have any kind of infrastructure in place for someone to be able to come forward anonymously and have have someone to talk to that's not they don't have to go talk to their abuser for the sense right or something like that. So to make sure to think that through to have that as a part of your system and part of your organization to say just in case this ever were to happen we want to be conscious of that I think is super important and, and really clear steps um, yeah. about how to get resolution and to pursue justice so. The, the default isn't, well, we need to protect the brand or protect the institution yeah. or the people in power. But we don't want to make the Christian faith look bad. Like we would want to be a church that took it seriously and dragged evil out into the light mm -hmm. and dealt yeah. with it in a way that, that, that led to justice and, and led to wholeness. So, um, yeah, I think that, that was pretty critical that we, um, you know, put some of that, those policies and procedures in place. Yeah. And there's lots of examples out there of uh, church institutions who have sought to protect the brand and it's destroyed the brand. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 The other thing I'll mention too, we've mentioned it a few times in the teachings, but reconciliation doesn't always mean returning to the state it was before. Yeah, yeah. So a consequence or part of restitution or even part of discipline, especially when a, a pastor or someone from an official standpoint, that might just not be a role that they can then be trusted with again, right? Yeah. There can still be healing, there can still be reconciliation and stuff within the community, but to then give that person who's done that the power to do that again, that takes an Im immense amount of, of work and trust and building it up and then even instituting those rules and those steps by to protect that and to make sure it doesn't happen again. 
And I think in, uh, say, more intimate relations or you know, family relationships you, or friends, you never go back to the same relationship. Sure. You can't because it has been changed by the wounding. But you can move to a different, an okay relationship. It's just going to be different and yeah. might even be better, actually. I'm wondering about picking up the question about being the peacemaker. So that was exactly what I was going to go next. Okay. So um, the mediator in me thinks we really yeah, need to no, have that Yeah, no, I was like, Keith would love this. Um, so the question is kind of what happens when we are not exactly the one of the, the offender or offended in terms of the the hurt, but we see that some in something happiness. So that could be you are part of your family and your brother and your mom have a disagreement. What is our role in that? It could also mean when we see situations around the world, um, what's happening with, you know, a, a country is at war or there's there's those kinds of things. What is our role in that? And then lastly, you'll have everyday situations. The coffee that I had this morning, um, there was somebody who was yelling at the cashier in the middle of, you know, a Tim Hortons <laughs> that was talking about, and it was this was racially charged too, and they were just frustrated and hurt. What's my role in terms of stepping into that conversation, being a peacemaker, helping others pursue reconciliation and forgiveness when we're not the offender offended um, primarily? So there's, okay, there's, there's two parts. So this last story about Tim Hortons is, is just a reminder. So Mennonite Central Committee Ontario runs a regular training program called active bystander training for what happens when you, what happens when you see something like the Tim Hortons and they have training resources on how to do that. And they have role-playing, the whole works. Um, great training. So that's that's one piece for that. So I'm not going to talk about that because that's <laughs> not my skill set. Sure, yeah, yeah. But the, quest, the family question, for example, is a really significant one because I think we all have family members who are uh, estranged in some way. Mm-hmm. So part of it is, um, so key principle, don't take sides right um make sure you know like make sure both of the people who are in conflict that you want to give a hand to know that you love them right so and if you love both of them you can't you can't take sides um don't be the means of communication between them like don't be the one who says oh joe said this and you and you go back and say oh joe mary said this right don't do that. Um, if they need to communicate, they need to communicate to each other. Mm. Um, don't get hooked into listening to one person complain and whine about the other person um, because that will hook you into their side. Would you suggest you, you sit down with the two people at the same time or do you hear one side, hear another side? What's the? Well, no, you don't hear one side or the other side. You have relationships with both of them. Yeah, okay. And you... And you um, and you get curious. So you maintain the relationships, let everybody know you have a relationship with the other one. So no hide, no hiding. Um, I ha- I'm, I'm talking with one person and I say, I just want you to know I'm also talking to the other person. And I care about you and I wanna help you, but, but I am having a relationship with both of you. Be clear with them that you're not taking sides. And the focus of the conversation with each of them is what are their needs and their hurts? Mm. And if they start complaining about the other, mind that for finding out what the hurts are that lie underneath, right? So it's not about who the other person is or what they're doing, it's about how you've been hurt. So you wanna focus there 
bringing them together, depending, it's a, so much depends on where they are, but bringing them together is probably going to be beyond your skill set, right? You just, you have no clue what's going to happen. You don't have the training to diffuse something that might blow up. You know, depending on where they are, you sit down at the two of them and one of them immediately launches into a 15 minute rant about how awful the other is and you're not prepared for that and you have no, and you've just blown your family to pieces. So be really, really careful about that. And you may need to find somebody from the outside to help. But that's gonna take some conversation to bring them to that point. Obviously, if it's a small thing, not necessarily, um, but there are, so I'm gonna have a story too that, that captures this. My dad and one of his sisters were estranged. Um, it's a very complicated extended family problem, but they were estranged from each other. And my dad's heart was broken that he was estranged from his sister. And I said, dad, I'm not sure what can happen, but here's what I would suggest you do. At Christmas, send her a Christmas card that says, dear sister, I love you. Happy Christmas. Mm -hmm. For her birthday, send her a card that says, dear sister, I love you. I hope you enjoyed your birthday. And he did this for like all of the, all of the card giving spots, right? Mm -hmm. He did it for about three years. And one day he said, you know, I think I can risk a call. So he phoned her up and said, um, sister, um, we have tickets to the symphony that we can't use. Would you like to have them? And she said, oh, thank you so much, but we can't go. Okay. Three weeks later, they were at their favorite bookstore having lunch and his sister walked in and he went over and says, sister, you want to come and have lunch with us? She said, sure. It was all done. They never had a conversation about what the problem was. Mm. But but for me, that's that's one of those pieces again. It's just the expression of love. Mm. So if one of the two people in your family can actually do that honestly, that might in fact be it. Mm. I don't know. But it just it just calls for really careful moving and being really, really careful that you don't get hooked into the conflict in any way. And, and the I'm, counseling language is self-differentiation, yeah. right? But, Connected, yeah. but I'm not you, right? Connected, I'm not you. But the person who is witnessing that, this and is hurt by it and is hmm. sleep, losing sleep over it may also need help right. in processing their position and their feelings. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and this, it's interesting because I think that also plays out into the extreme situations that we're talking about. When you have wars that are happening, none of us are really going to be the people that bring them. We're not going to bring Russia and Ukraine together, right? Like, that's just not part of our role is what we do is also just checking and making sure our hearts are still in it, right? When Ukraine and Russia, that war specifically started, I remember hearing someone praying that, you know, I wish the Russian soldiers would just drop dead. And you're like, okay, I understand the heart there. You, you see evil and you're trying to pray against it. But trying to hold people, especially in those kinds of situations, to understand they're still people. They're still created and bear the image of God. They're still people that Christ has died for and are called to be loved. They are very much hurting as well. What you said, you know, realize that they have needs and hurts. People don't wake up and they become terrorists or start wars. It's coming from a state of hurt and 
of a need that they might not necessarily have. So remembering those people in terms of of when we think about them, when we interact, when we have discussions, we we might never do anything practical in in these situations. But that goes a big long way to view both sides in terms of that of how do we view the other and making sure that the we remind people these are loved hurting people as well on both sides. It's not a terrorist and innocent victim you know like sometimes there are those but it is a lot of there's still hurt going on that we need to also address and name and call both parties to to work towards so you're basically in essence talking about empathy oh yeah so yeah that'd be a good word seeing the word world from the other often Mm -hmm. changes how we view a situation and even in situations where people are would be labeled as pure evil I think we have to have a curiosity. What 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 led them to that? What experiences did they have? Because nobody wait, nobody is born and say my goal in life is to be purely evil and to yeah. wreck as many lives as I can. What have they experienced along the way? And and I think of the uh, indigenous people in Canada and some of the comments that are made about them. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what have they gone through? What have they experienced generationally that has led them to? you know, these behaviors or whatever. At the end of my third sermon, I referenced um, a book by Pumla who did, I I can never get her last name, so I never try. Uh, A a human being died that night, which is her interaction. She worked with the reconciliation in Africa. Mm. And part of actually uh, the council that sat with her um, when Rwanda happened, they had the victims share their stories to the, uh, the offenders, the people who had hurt and what ended up happening in that process was um, the victims, the people who were hurt, wanted to actually hear the story of the offenders. I want to know, actually, how did you come to the point that you were able to do that to people that I loved, or, or to me even? And you saw tremendous healing and reconciliation in that, where it became just a natural thing to view the other person and say, this is another human being who is hurt and they did terrible, terrible things, but I need to understand their story so that I can understand and process that and then enter into this kind of healing. One of the, the terms that I used in my teaching is in, in less extreme circumstances than that yeah. is to remind my students that the person you're in conflict with, just like you, is climbing a mountain. You don't know what their mountain is. You know what yours is, but you mm. don't know their mountain. And so, but you can be guaranteed that they are climbing a difficult mountain. And so to have empathy for them and what they did to you um, because of the mountain that they're climbing is really, really important. Yeah. It can be really hard work, even Mm -hmm. if the harm isn't extreme. But to just to recognize that they're also climbing a mountain. Yeah. I used to teach my small group leaders when I was a youth pastor all about that because kids act out every week, right? They are not acting out. There, it's not just on the surface level. It's always, there's something else going yeah. on and to remember that because or else we get into just corrective behavior. You know, don't say that word or don't do this or don't, you know, but getting to the root of the relationship and understanding, oh, you're acting out because your parents are probably going, are going through a divorce right now and yeah. you're just being bitter towards everything. Like that's part of building these relationships yeah. and understanding people have other things that are going on and when people act out, they, it's, often there's something deeply rooted on the inside. So that person today at Tim Hortons could have been having a rough day and you never know. They, you know, like it's, it's understanding and having empathy for them while not excusing and just continuing to allow them to yell at an employee, terrible things. 
but yeah, it's it's understanding that there is deep roots and pain that is going on in everyone's lives and understanding that. That's the common denominator we seem to all have. I think the use of language is really important too. Yeah. Like what words we use that uh, can be healing words or can be dividing words or even how we refer to other people, right? You know, um, language is really, I think we really need to think about language how we talk about other people and this is good we only have a, a couple questions that we probably haven't touched on um one that i would say and I, I don't know if i'm particularly equipped for this but how do we forgive in racially charged situations or how do we continue to view people in love in love as their children of god how do we keep this empathy going especially when they might not be a good person <laughs> you know and, and that's that might be us deciding they're not a good person but what if they're actually very difficult people there are difficult people to love right um my wife tells me i'm one of those all the time but uh <laughs> there are people who are more difficult to love how do we continue to enter those relationships when um we carry that and that might be some of our own baggage as well but I was Wonderful. thinking it's the idea of humility. Like it takes humility when, when I know I've wronged somebody yeah. to go to them and say I've mm. wronged, I've wronged you, um, and I need forgiveness. But then it, I sometimes I think it takes humility to go to somebody who's wronged you as well in in a strange sort of way because you have to recognize that you um, are maybe again we're not we would never excuse bad behavior but you're sensitive to something in a way that heightens something and and allows you to allow something to become more than it was meant to be. And so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure when we say, you know, how do we forgive in racially charged situations, like which side of the equation we're on. But I think it probably takes humility. Going back to what we said about asking the questions, how did, how did we, how did people get to this place where this kind of behavior mm -hmm. was either okay in their minds or was a response to something they were going through. So just that idea of humility and then, and I think one of the weeks, maybe it was when I preached it, just the idea of remembering what, what Christ has done for me. Mm. And is, I'm so quick to, to undermine my own sin. My sin's not that big. I'm a pretty good person. But to understand um, you know, the difference between being holy and not holy is a big gap and that Jesus steps, steps into that. So, yeah, that, that kind of humility as we approach the other person, whichever way it goes. And it's also good to notice something I've learned because I'm terrible at it of realizing when is a good time to have these conversations and when is not. Um, I remember I had a, an issue with a colleague and we happened to have a whole staff meeting around a day. This has nothing to do with our relationship. We had a whole thing on gender relations and on men versus women and, and in the workplace and all this. And I said, oh, I'm with that person that day. I'll have this conversation. So we just had a conversation about how, like, men and women are treated differently. And then I had to have this tough conversation with an employee who was a female, by the way, that's the important thing, wasn't the time to have it. Because they read this as, why would you ever pick up? I would have said the same thing if I, I, I said to my wife, I was like, I just thought it was a convenient time. Not realizing we were coming out of an emotional Reg is laughing. He's like, why do we hire this guy? But <laughs> that was a lesson for me to understand of like, sometimes there people are not able to have these conversations and you need to give space and time and there's a place to have it. Generally not when emotions are supercharged and um, things happen. So, yeah. So one of the keys there is to uh, set a time. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, work colleague, well, probably still not good to do it after the meeting. Yeah. But <laughs> at another time, say to your work colleague, hey, we need to have a conversation about something. 
X, it'll be a difficult conversation. When would you like to do it, right? So just being really deliberate. Like, I think that's really good, but also articulating your desire for things to be good. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that changes, like, if Aaron and I are in conflict and I'm like, Aaron, I need to talk to you about a hard thing, that 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 just sets us up for yeah. tension. But if I say, hey, like, we've got some stuff to work through, but but this will be good for us if we, yeah. or it's, yeah. you know, we're, we're moving in the same direction. I think there's just value in... <laughs> so one of my responses to this one about, especially when they're not good people, um, I will say, <laughs> really? <laughs> Aren't most of us messed up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, um, that was yeah. my first response. Yeah. Um, but for me, the response is one of curiosity, yeah. Mm, right? Yeah. And again, that's one of the things that I preached in my conflict resolution work is when you're in conflict with someone, just be curious mm. and ask questions of curiosity. Yeah. Like, don't launch into a rant at, the other person for who they are and what they did, but but to be curious, genuine, and, and do it in a way that shows that you actually want to hear the answer. Like there's ways of asking a curious question that say, and you're an idiot too if you give me the wrong answer, right? Uh, <laughs> but to ask the curious question of, you know, I don't understand what happened. What was going on in your head when we had that interaction? I'd be mm -hmm. curious. What were you feeling when we had that interaction? I'm curious. I want to know. It's interesting because when I taught in, in the nursing program, I taught fourth year students. And one of the, uh, I taught public health nursing, so there's a lot of issues, societal issues mm. in that course. And over the years, I saw an erosion of the ability to be curious. Um. And it intrigued me because I would show them a video of, say, a community health nurse interacting, and I'd, and I'd, I'd ask for some general comments. Well, sometimes I get them, and most times I didn't. And I'd say, what do you think? Are you, aren't you curious about why the nurse did this or said this? And they look at me with a blank. Really? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I taught over, like, 30 years, and there was this erosion of curiosity as a... a it was like, tell me what to do, and I'll do it in this course. Or, or tell me, it, it was black and white. It wasn't like, aren't you curious about this? Aren't you? Yeah. And even in counseling, one of the, the, the best qualities, because I taught a course on counseling, and I said, one of the best qualities you can have is to be curious. You can, yeah, you need skills. But if you're not curious, you're not going to make it as a counselor, right? And uh, so I think if we develop that sense of curiosity, um, then a lot of this stuff about forgiveness would be almost taken care of. Because I'm curious about, like you said, what made you into this bad person <laughs> or, or what makes us in, you know, behave the way we do. And we may not always have the answers, but even just asking the questions puts us in a different position. And, and I think there's a reason why Jesus, to bring back to him, <laughs> ate a lot of meals with different people, right? I think when you share tables, when you get to know people, when you build relationships, it's hard to view them as an enemy or as a bad, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's something, and maybe it's just my Baptist roots of needing to have food all the time for ministry, <laughs> um, but there's something about breaking bread and just sharing a table with someone that helps you satisfy that curiosity, right? It helps you ask those questions and get to know them as a human being. And it humanizes them. Yeah, it humanizes them. So it's no longer a them versus me. It's a we're sitting together and talking about that thing. Um, I, I want to say thank you guys for, for 
coming in and doing this and being part of the conversation. We're pretty much at the end of our time, but I wanted just, is there anything else anyone wanted to say on this topic or just? Can I just add one more thing? Uh, because I don't think it's come up in our conversation or in the sermons, but it when you just said, that, uh, talked about the time and place to, mm-hmm. you know, there are also developmental stages of life where forgiveness is more of a concern to people, most notably older adults. Mm. They look back over, they go through this process of reminiscing about my life and what I've done. So in a church context, many churches have a lot of older adults and Mm. there may be, just knowing that that's a normal developmental process, um, you know, you, you can have your antenna out perhaps for are there issues that they need to deal with. One of the books I read in in doing the research uh, from Ronald Rollheiser, he has a whole chapter on forgiveness in his book. And he says that, you know, when you're early in your life, your primary temptation and struggle is going to be on lust. But when you become older, you're actually, it's on anger um, because you've realized how much you've been hurt, right? So it's that whole thing. <laughs> he just raising his hand. Is, yes. Amen. But, Amen. but it's, it's one of those things. As you progress in life, you realize, and it's, it's a question of you have two paths, right? Who are you becoming? Are you becoming someone who is, wants to be more forgiving and loving and mercy and compassion and do what we would say kingdom values? Or are we becoming someone who is going down that more bitter, more angry? Um, and we see that play out generally as people, I think, get a little bit older. You either have that super lovable... You know, I want to hang out with them. They enjoy all the time. Or someone who's just bitter and, and gets angry and, and grumpy about things. And they're walking down two paths of life. That doesn't mean if you're on that path, you can't turn around. But it means the more you progress down there, the easier it is to become that person. And our hope is we would be wanting to become more like Jesus, more like kingdom, more like the, 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 the people that we want to be when we get to heaven, right? And the exciting thing about getting older is that you're physical declines your cognitive may decline but your social may decline but your spiritual development can mm-hmm. occur until you take your last breath yeah 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 something you said at the beginning um you were likening the idea of working towards reconciliation in the same vein as evangelism that the idea is we would want to work towards something before somebody passed away and i just think there's great value in from a, just a pastoral word to remind people and i said something um you know, uh, in in the sermon, the middle sermon, about um, you act according to the kingdom you belong to, and so if you belong to the kingdom of grace, that that we ought to um, be people who are extending grace to others. But just the reminder that, um, yeah, we the Lord's prayer. We were talking about the Lord's prayer at one point, and the idea of you know your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that if the great hope in Jesus is that um, He's going to set all things right then we ought to be motivated to be participating with that mm. in little ways, in our, in our family relationships, in our friendships with our coworkers. Um, it's good to have the big conversations about global unrest and the stuff that's out of our control, but the stuff that is in my control, that I, if I can participate with the kingdom of heaven here and now, um, it, it's doing something in my own spiritual formation. It's doing something um, in my relationship with somebody else, but it also is this testimony of the kingdom to which we belong. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, just something that you said that has kind of been stirring in my mind and just a good reminder for, for Lincoln Road Chapel. I assume mostly LRC people will be listening to this and just to encourage us again to say, you know, this is, this is a critical part of our faith and, uh, and it's hard work 
and and so you know pastoral staff Aaron and myself and others you know would be on that journey with you but to say when we engage this way we're participating in the in in the Jesus way of life in the kingdom that we belong to Perfect. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Hope this answered your questions. If you have any more, please feel free to send them in and uh, Reg and I can answer them or engage. But thanks for listening and engaging on this topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, Till next time.